When we set out on a journey, whether it's a literal journey where we're crossing great expanses of distance over time, or an inward odyssey directed towards self-discovery and growth, or both, often the version of ourselves taking the first step on that journey is quite different from the version taking the last one. We struggle, we grow, we endure, and hopefully the challenges we meet along the road, however unpredictable and ill-timed, become a forge where we're tempered over and over again into something stronger, wiser, and more resilient. Journeys like that can be adventurous, exciting, and a little scary, but never easy. When the competitors of the New York to Paris auto race of 1908 left Times Square for 22,000 miles of such an adventure, not one of them understood how exacting that journey would be and quite a few of them would quit. Those that surged ahead through the freezing cold, mud, and constant mechanical frustrations only to later meet severe heat, dust storms, quicksand, and a roadless road that seemed to never grow any easier, would only be able to do so through learning those excruciating lessons of perseverance and patience. On day one, seven of the cars that entered the race didn't show up. One was finished after 24 hours due to mechanical failure and the realization that getting to the end of this thing was probably impossible. Another was disqualified after cheating less than 1,500 miles in. Four cars representing four different countries remained. The American Thomas Flyer, the Italian Zeust, the French de Dion, and the German Protos. Originally, they were to drive east across the U.S., north through Canada, east through Alaska, then over the frozen Bering Strait to Siberia, crossing then through Asia and into Europe. But nothing had gone as planned, and the race committee was forced to change the route. Alaska was out. No car could traverse that wilderness without being taken apart and loaded onto dog sleds. The Bering Strait was out. The ice had thinned too much for an autocrossing. Instead, the cars had been loaded onto freighters in Seattle, Washington, and were now making their way east over the Pacific. Next was the huge, often wild expanse of Siberia. No car in history had ever driven all the way through it. It was too dangerous, and most agreed, impossible. But these contestants had grown accustomed to going after the impossible. We left off in the last episode with the Protos on a freighter heading for Siberia. The three other cars, which were in need of some paperwork before they could enter Russia, were on ships headed for Japan. After docking, they had all covered roughly 11,000 miles. There was somewhere around 11,000 more to go. They were tired, homesick, and exhausted. The only thing they knew about the way ahead was that it would be difficult, or even harder, than anything they'd already had to go through. And they were going to do it anyway. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside.
It had taken the fastest car of the New York to Paris auto race of 1908, just under two months to reach California before heading up to Seattle. Today, that trip in a car would take around 42 hours of solid driving time. But considering it had taken wagon trains around six months to cover the length of the Oregon Trail, two months seemed like a fairly decent arrival time. When the race began, the rule was that all cars had to make it to Paris under their own power. This markedly misplaced faith in the reliability of early automobiles was short-lived. Right away, from day one, teams of horses had rescued and hauled cars from ditches and snow and even pulled them for miles over farm fields and a winter-pummeled countryside they could never have crossed on their own. You could make a strong case that the New York to Paris auto race would have been impossible without the aid of horses. Cars were also given clearance in places to use train tracks to cross otherwise impassable distances. The tracks were hard on the cars, often causing mechanical issues, but in a 22,000-mile auto race where no highways existed, there was really no other option. There was controversy over the railways used. Before a car could drive over tracks, it needed permission to do so from the railroad authorities. Otherwise, they'd be meeting trains head-on. All cars used train tracks to cover more ground, but more than once, the American car had been given permission to drive over tracks that had been later denied to the foreign entries. This was causing resentment, and some of the other drivers, particularly Sir Tori from the Italian team, believed the Americans should have been penalized. But the race committee disagreed because the American car was the only vehicle that made it to Alaska. It was the only one that even tried. Once they arrived in Valdez via a ship from Seattle and saw how unnavigable Alaska was by car, they were ordered to put the flyer back on a ship, retrace their steps to Seattle, and ship out for Russia via Japan. The Italian Zeus and French de Dion were already crossing the ocean as the American car was making its way back which meant the American car, which had remained in first place for the bulk of the race, was now in last place. While the other three cars were over the Pacific, the German Protos was still stuck in Ogden, Utah. Its leader, Hans Koppen, put the Protos on a train and shipped it to Seattle, skipping nearly a thousand miles of the race. The French Motoblock had been disqualified for doing this same thing when they had shipped their car from Iowa to San Francisco. When Copen and his team arrived in Valdivostok, Russia, a port town just north of what is now North Korea, the German team would not have been surprised to hear they too had been disqualified. But Copen had been told to ship his car by saint Chaffray of the French de Dion team. St. Chaffray was technically a race official, since he'd been part of planning the original route. The race committee ruled there had been some honest confusion about what was and wasn't allowed. So instead of disqualification, the German team was docked with a penalty of 15 days. This meant that even if they reached Paris first, the other cars could arrive in Paris two weeks after they did and still beat them. But in this race, teams had lost days and weeks already to mechanical issues and unforeseen obstacles. 
So even with a two-week penalty, it was less likely, but still possible, for the German team to win. Since the American car had lost a significant amount of time traveling to Alaska, and more time as it was shipped back to Seattle, they were allotted a credit of 15 days. Meaning that if another team arrived in Paris before them, and they were able to catch them within two weeks, the victory would technically belong to the Americans. This also meant that with their 15-day penalty, the German Protos would have to beat the Americans to Paris by 30 days in order to win. This was assuming any of them would make it at all. If you've enjoyed the story of this race so far, I again highly recommend reading Julie M. Fenster's book called The Race of the Century, The Heroic True Story of the 1908 New York to Paris Auto Race. This was my main source of information, and wow, did she exhaustively research this race. Her work cited section alone is 35 pages long, single-spaced. So if you want all the juicy details, check it out. The first cars to arrive in Japan were the French de Dion and the Italian Zeust. They landed in Yokohama, a city in Tokyo Bay. The ship that would carry them the rest of the way to Russia was on the other side of the island and would leave from the port of Suruga. This meant the Italian and French teams had a choice to make. They could either get back on a ship and sail to the port of Suruga, a voyage of around 550 miles, or they could just drive across Japan to the west coast. The ship route would have been an easy ride with no surprises or unnecessary delays. According to Fenster, driving across Japan would be an unpredictable course that, as the crow flies, was around 200 miles long. But due to a meandering course over countless rice fields and a mountain range, it could become up to three times that. No one had ever driven a car across Japan before. According to Fenster, many of the roads weren't even constructed for horses, as carts were typically pulled by people and the thoroughfares weren't wide enough to accommodate a wagon or a carriage, both of which were smaller in size than any of these cars. Most paths had been built hundreds of years before, specifically for foot traffic. The idea of traversing the Japanese countryside by automobile in 1908 was absurd. So, of course, they went for it. Both the French and Italian teams chose to drive. First, they had to wait five days to cut through the red tape it took to obtain a special permit to travel over the island. So before they had even left, the driving route had already cost them five days. While the Americans were still en route to Japan, and the Germans were now en route to Russia, and the Italian and French teams were waiting on the go-ahead to drive, saint Chaffray of the French de Dion team received some troubling news one that made his stomach feel like it dropped all the way down to his toes. His team was sponsored by his uncle, the Marquis de Dion, and the de Dion Company, which at the time was the largest car manufacturer in France. When saint Chaffray arrived in Japan, he expected another influx of cash to cover the expenditures of the race. Instead, he received a message from the factory telling him the Marquis had decided to withdraw the French car. The Marquis felt that now, since the route had excluded Alaska and the Bering Strait, the competition had become a mirror of the previous year's famous Peking to Paris race. 
That had been a disaster of a competition in which the Dedeon Company had not done well. And now the American car was getting a two-week credit, something that meant if he were to win, St. Chaffray would have to beat them by two weeks. That was a tall task, considering the Dedeon had stayed in third place for the first half of the course. The Marquis didn't want to lose face, or keep bleeding money into a race that he didn't think the French could win. Plus, the race seemed to have petered out somewhat in the press after Alaska had been stricken from the route. If the race wasn't going to bring good press with it, and an increase in sales for the Dedeon Company, then the Marquis didn't want to continue. St. Chaffray and his two teammates, however, felt they had overcome innumerable challenges to make it this far, and for them there was nothing, not even a letter telling them it was over, that would keep them from finishing this race. They ignored the message and decided to continue. St. Chaffray wasn't sure how, now that his funding was gone, but he was determined to find a way. Scarfoglio of the Italian team, who couldn't help but feel some empathy for the financially abandoned French team, wrote, quote, The three brave Frenchmen are wandering through Yokohama, worried, hungry, but steadfast. They will go on living by selling postcards, fortune-telling, or anything, but will drive on to Paris or die in the attempt, unquote. On May 6th, the Italian Zeus and French de Dion began their journey across Japan. It was a hot day and sunny, flowers were blooming everywhere, a far cry from the snowy, freezing temperatures they had experienced leaving New York that first day. In rural areas, people, some of whom had never seen a car before, would crowd around the vehicles en masse, reaching out to touch them whenever they stopped. In 1908, Japan was in the middle of a population boom. According to Fenster, its population had increased by 50% since 1870. In the U.S., much of the country the teams had seen between cities had been open and sparsely populated, especially as they drew west. The crowds in numerous villages throughout eastern Japan were a striking change from the vast countryside they had experienced in the States. Day one of the drive was sunny and sizzling, but mercifully predictable. Day two was more difficult, because both cars had to cross the looming, illustrious expanse of Mount Fuji. At 12,388 feet, or 3,776 meters, Mount Fuji, or Fujiyama, is the highest point in all of Japan. According to NASA, it's a stratovolcano, its tall cone-shaped form having been shaped by layers of volcanic ash hardened lava, pumice, and tephra. And Fujiyama is still considered active. Its last eruption was in 1707, almost 200 years before it became an impromptu part of the 1908 New York to Paris auto race. Like everything else had been, crossing this mountain was more strenuous than the teams had anticipated. The cars were way too big for the winding narrow passes, the way was incredibly steep and didn't offer enough traction for their tires. For at least half of the eight-mile route over the mountain, the drivers steered while the rest of the team pushed from behind. But that wasn't enough. Right away, it was obvious they couldn't make it on their own. 
Thankfully, there were plenty of people willing to help. They hired laborers who helped push the cars up the mountain, sometimes having to pick it up in order to straighten it out. On the way down, they used ropes holding the cars back so the driver didn't lose control and speed down the mountainside. According to Fenster, more often than not, the laborers doing the most grueling work of pushing and pulling were women. It was 1908, and the status of women in the West was abysmal. Women from the countries where these teams came from, Italy, France, the U.S., and Germany, still didn't have the right to vote, and wouldn't, in most cases, for decades. Women hadn't even been considered as possible contestants in this race. The men in this story were used to sexism because they had been raised in a system that normalized it. Despite this, they were still surprised at how atrocious the status of women in Japan was in the early 20th century. In all, it would take the Italian and French teams five days to cover the 200-mile route. With the five days it had taken them to acquire the necessary paperwork, the drive cost them a total of ten days. Now, the Americans with their Thomas Flyer had arrived in Japan. The other teams had already driven the 200 miles from the port of Yokohama to Suruga. The Americans decided on a different route. They took a ship from Yokohama to Kobe, which cut their drive to Suruga down to 90 miles, or so they thought. This path was less mountainous, but finding the way was just as difficult. The Americans couldn't find a guide who knew the way between Kobe and Suruga. Instead, they found a ship broker, one who owned two cars himself, to lead them to Kyoto. From there, they would have to get directions from village to village. Fujiyama had been the biggest obstacle for the other two teams. For the Americans, it would be bridges. Many of them were made of bamboo, and at most were only meant to support a couple thousand pounds at a time. The flyer weighed over twice that. Often, they would have to drive out of the way to find a viable crossing, costing them both time and mileage. Finally, the team found themselves only 25 miles from their port. Unfortunately, they discovered the only route from where they were was not nearly wide enough to drive through. So far, they had found their way over almost every path and road and trail, none of which had been built for automobiles. But they wouldn't this time. Their only option was an 80-mile detour, which included a steep, unforgiving trek over mountains. The team had to hire around 50 laborers to help push the flyer up through the mountains. This detour nearly doubled the length of their drive. On the way down the mountains, ropes were used as they had been on Mount Fuji with the other cars. Schuster was at the wheel steering when those ropes snapped, and no one could hold on to the flyer as it began careening down the mountain with its one surprised but ready passenger. Schuster had been expecting something like this to happen to him. With a monumental effort of maneuvering brakes, gears, and wheels, Schuster was able to eventually right the car with no one injured. If anyone had doubted the mechanic's recent promotion to driver, they could be sure now he was the right person for the job. The flyer pulled into Suruga without further incident, at least none big enough to find a place in the history books. 
The Zeus and Dion were already floating over the water as the flyer, too, was hoisted onto a ship. The first half of the journey was officially over. Behind them were thousands upon thousands of miles of disaster and unpredictability, which they had all survived through a mixture of grit, dumb luck, and the aid of countless horses and helpful people. They knew Russia was next, but that was all they knew. Everything else was steeped in the unknown unpredictability of a hard adventure. But that was kind of the point. What happens when two great minds armed with profound ideas go toe-to-toe in pitched, if generally polite, battle? You get a revolution in podcasting. Philosophy versus improv. Philosopher Mark Linsenmeyer and improviser Bill Arnett each try to teach each other their crafts via conversation, scenes, and what can only be called performance art. They're often joined by a guest or two from the philosophy or entertainment worlds. Philosophy versus Improv is a show where anything can happen. Filled with drama, creativity, humor, and connection, this is a show you definitely want to tune into. Philosophical concepts are grounded with real and fantastic situations. Forget anything you know about improv games. This is what's called long-form improv, where you spin out a world right there in the moment. The combination of these two is like nothing you've ever experienced. Add philosophy versus improv to your listen queue wherever you listen to podcasts, or find them at philosophyimprov.com. Now, back to the show. Russia felt like a second chance. For most of the first 11,800 miles, Hans Koppen and his German protos had been in last place. The Americans had stayed in first with a huge lead, while the Italian Zeust and the French de Dion had struggled to close in. Now they were all geographically joined once again in the Russian port town of Vladivostok. From here, the lead could be anyone's. Today, Vladivostok is a city with movie theaters, museums, an orchestra, and a population well over 600,000. In 1908, it was a young town, established in 1860, and used mainly as a military port, as tensions were still high after the Russo-Japanese War that had ended only three years prior. 115 years ago, Vladivostok was, and still is, the last most eastern stop on the Trans-Siberian Railway. It was a place where civilization had just begun to bloom, but it retained a wild feeling, stirring just enough uncertainty that upon arrival, our teams felt they had to stay uncomfortably alert. On May 12th, Hans Koppen and his German Protos had arrived first, after 23 days at sea. Unlike the three other teams, he was able to ship his car right to the Russian port. Upon arrival, the Protos was moved, now with two flat tires, into a government warehouse, where it would stay until it was cleared for entry. That would take a few days, so Copen, completely disheveled after 23 days on a ship, now fully bearded and windbeaten, decided to find a hotel. He chose the Hotel d'Alemania, the German hotel. 
Inside, he spotted two well-dressed men, looking confused and a bit out of place. They told him they were expecting a Hans Koppen. They had only seen him in pictures, and this grisly-looking fellow in front of them didn't look like a Prussian army officer. They thought Koppen was joking when he told them he was the man they were looking for. These were his two new drivers. His previous team had abandoned him in Chicago. His new teammates were Casper Neuberger and Robert Fuchs, both mechanics who worked at the Protos factory in Berlin. Koppen had a few days to become acquainted with his new team as he waited for his papers. As he waited, the other contestants started to arrive. The Zeust and Dion arrived on a ship called Long Moon on May 15th, three days after Koppen. When Henry Haga and Antonio Scarfoglio had embarked for Russia, they had done so without their driver Emilio Sertori. Sertori had quit the race three times in all. Homesickness, the hard reality that the race was much more difficult than anticipated, frustration over mechanical issues, and the constant pressure of knowing the American car had been so far ahead had been too much for Sertori. But he'd had several weeks to think things over and calm down while the Italian Zeus and its two remaining crew members had been driving over Japan and floating over the Pacific. Now, he wanted back in. And again, the race's youngest driver, the 26-year-old Sertori, decided he was ready to race. He was reunited with Haga and Scarfoglio when they arrived in Russia. When he greeted them, it was with mixed emotions. In his hand, he held a series of telegrams from the Italian Zeust factory instructing the Italian team to quit and return the car back to Milan. The Italian factory believed the Americans were now unbeatable. They had kept a huge lead for the first half of the race, and now they were being given a 15-day credit to subtract from their finish time. Crossing the states had been expensive, and crossing Asia would be too. Plus, given all the angry telegrams they had received from Sertori about the unfairness of the race and his frustrations, the factory genuinely believed the Italian team didn't want to continue. Rather than throw money into a useless venture, the Zeus factory wanted its car back. Sertori sent them a series of telegrams explaining the team did in fact wish to continue. Confused and unsure of what to do, Zeust eventually decided to back Sertori and allow the team to finish. Italy was still in the race. France, however, had had enough. In Japan, saint Chefray had been ordered to quit the race. He had refused. The French team decided they would do whatever it took to finish, relentlessly pressing on even if they had to cover the costs themselves. Confronted with the stubborn tenacity of a team that wouldn't quit, the Marquis de Dion decided to do the one thing that would make the way ahead impossible for his team. He sold their car. It was sold to a gentleman from China before the French team had even set foot on Russia, and it was taken away immediately. By the time the American Thomas Flyer arrived on May 18th, the de Dion was gone. For a team willing to take on the immense expenditure of this race by any means necessary just so they could finish, this news was devastating. They'd lasted for three hard months, 
enduring, struggling, and persevering while the world watched, only to be thrown out of the most important competition of their lives by a marquee a continent away, and there was nothing they could do about it. Borsier saint Chaffray told his teammates Monsieur Autran and Emmanuel Lascars there was nothing left for them to do but go home. As for himself, he decided he wasn't going anywhere. saint Chaffray mulled and thought, then thought and mulled. After all that thinking and mulling, he was still unsure of what to do. So he blackmailed everyone. One of the biggest hurdles the remaining teams would face in Siberia was the inaccessibility of gasoline. Even during the U.S. leg of the race, obtaining gas had been a huge worry from the start. It wasn't the price at nine cents a gallon that had been the issue. It was the fact that there were no gas stations yet for routine fill-ups. According to Fenster, the Standard Oil Company had helped make gasoline available in the American territories as well as in several other countries. The chemists at the Standard Oil Company had even gone to work creating motor oils that could withstand the extreme temperatures the teams were sure to face so their fuel wouldn't freeze. The French newspaper, Le Matin, which was a race sponsor, promised to drop barrels of oil throughout the wilderness of Siberia. However, when the Alaska route had changed, so had the Siberian one. Originally, the cars were supposed to cross the icy Bering Strait, then take a route through northwest Siberia. Now they were taking the southern route, and that meant gas was, again, a problem. Köppen of the German team had already begun making arrangements for barrels of fuel to be shipped ahead of his team so there would be gasoline waiting for them as they advanced. Schuster of the American team tried doing the same thing, but with no luck, since by the time he'd arrived in Vladivostok, all the gas had been spoken for. That's when he received a message from St. Chaffray asking the Americans to come visit him at the Hotel d'Alemania. Schuster arrived, as requested, bringing his new teammate, a reporter named George McAdam, with him. When the two arrived to meet St. Chaffray, the Italian team was already there. They had also been invited to whatever this impromptu meeting was. St. Chaffray told them there was no gasoline to be found in Siberia, but that he had a large reserve of it, and he would give it to whoever gave him a spot in their car. The Italian team considered this to be blackmail. They were so infuriated, they left the room almost immediately. With that, the Americans became St. Chaffray's last chance at staying in the race. St. Chaffray told them he could get a spot in the German Protos, but he believed the Americans would win in the end. He also didn't think it would look good for him as a Frenchman to ride in a German car. Remember, at this point in time, World War I was a mere six years away. Schuster was too polite to tell St. Chaffray no to his face, so he did what most polite people do when they don't want to disappoint someone. He said he'd think about it. Schuster got to work after the meeting acquiring gasoline from a few boats and another reserve from a department store. The next morning, when St. Chaffray came knocking, Schuster simply said they had all the gas they needed and closed the door, ending the awkward conversation before it could really start. St. Chaffray decided to donate all his gasoline to the Italian team, 
Then he made his way to Paris in the only mode of transport left to him, a train. Borsier saint Chaffray and the French de Dion team were officially out of the New York to Paris auto race. The remaining teams were told the road ahead, which wasn't really a road most of the time, was completely impassable. According to Fenster, the governor of Russia's maritime province told Copen that not only was the way ahead, quote, perfectly roadless, but because of the thaw and the rain this time of year, it was perfectly groundless. And he wasn't wrong. Enormous floods, bogs, mud, and bandits who were already interested in kidnapping the contestants for random were all serious considerations. Of course, the teams all decided to push ahead anyway. They also agreed to leave Vladivostok on the same day. Three cars were left now. The American Thomas Flyer, the Italian Zeust, the German Protos. All were ready to be the first automobile in history to cross the entire length of Siberia. Impossible? Sure. But they developed a flexible relationship with the impossible. They would plan, adapt, act, and react. Safety and success were not guaranteed. Failure, and even death, were much more likely. The only promise, the only true assurance they did have, was that no matter what, they were going to make history. Originally, I was planning on making this episode another long one, thinking it would be the last in this series. But travel and the holidays dashed that dream of mine fairly quickly. The next episode will be the last one in this series. After that, we'll move on to something new. I know it's been a long journey, and I hope you'll stay with me to see how it ends. I cannot thank you enough for making this podcast a part of your day. I'm continuously humbled and grateful at the thought of anyone listening to this podcast. Your awesomeness truly knows no bounds. If you like the show, please consider leaving a five-star review, rating, and following on iTunes or wherever you listen. This really does help make the show more visible. I'll be back again in three weeks with more history for you. Until then, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can still find me on Twitter, but I haven't been very active there, and I'm leaning towards finding a different platform. You can, however, still find me on Instagram, and I do still post there. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Background music and sound effects are licensed through Envato Elements, theme song through Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay smart, stay curious. And until we meet again, my dear friends, go make some history.